0: Now, unfortunately, there is a lot of Christians, especially in America, who come to the end of life, and they're wasting their lives. Why? Because they're listening more to what the society says and what current Christian America says than what the Word of God says. I meet some older Christians today who are more concerned about their retirement account and their golf game than they are investing in the kingdom of God.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the book of Daniel, and today we come to a favorite account of this great prophet of God. It's the one in which Daniel, being faithful to God in prayer, violates the law established by his fellow commissioners who had sought to bring him down. Because of these men, Daniel's fate lay in the lion's den. But his faith lay in the lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Take your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms, which is about dead center, scan to the right. You'll come to Ezekiel, and right after the prophet Ezekiel, one of Daniel's contemporaries, you will come to this prophet. If you're new, we've been working our way verse by verse through this book. And our text of Scripture today is one of the best-known passages in all of the Bible. It's the historical record of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, we've been studying. He's an amazing individual. He teaches us many timeless principles on how to walk with God, how to stand strong morally, ethically, spiritually in a society that is becoming more and more pagan. Many of you know D.L. Moody. He was the great evangelist of the 19th century. He died in December of 1899. God used him on three continents to bring tens of thousands of people to faith in Christ. His hometown was in Northfield, Massachusetts. Not all that far from where I was raised. And this is the text that is on his tombstone. The one who does the will of God abides forever. It's from 1 John 2. John said, the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. That certainly could have been Daniel's epitaph. He was a man who not only started well, he was a man who finished well. He was a man who consistently walked with God, who did the will of God. The world, its loss and its powers are passing away. But Daniel, now an old man when we come to the sixth chapter, we met him as a youth. Now he's between 85 and 90. He is finishing well. Let's begin by reading our text so we have a flavor of the historical setting. Daniel chapter 6, beginning now in verse 1. Follow along in your Bibles. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them, three commissioners, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom... The prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked." Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, Pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Now to appreciate this great event, we need to understand it in its historical context. So let me bring you to where we are in our study of Daniel. If you read through the book several times, you will see there are two key divisions as pictured here. In Daniel 1 through 6, we find Daniel and his personal friends. And then in Daniel 7 through 12, we find Daniel and his peoples, namely Israel's future. Chapters 1 through 6, we saw are largely historical with just a little bit of prophecy sprinkled in. It's all said in the third person. When you come to the seventh chapter, you know there is an immediate change because the whole narrative changes to the first person. The second half of the book is almost all prophecy with just a little bit of history sprinkled in. Now, don't forget that chapters 1 through 6 take place chronologically, and chapters 7 through 12 take place during the events of one through six. And so as we work through seven through 12, I will show you where it will fit in in the first six chapters. Now, let me take you into the more immediate context where we've been so far. The first six chapters record six historical events. The book opens in chapter one, introducing us to four young men who are deported as teenagers. If you remember, Nabopolassar was king when General Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. comes down to siege the city of Jerusalem. In the process, he finds that his daddy has died. So he keeps the city under siege. He takes some hostages as, uh, from the royal family uh, for you know, some backing, so to speak. And he goes back to Babylon where he's crowned king. He eventually comes back, and of course, in that first deportation in 605 BC, he takes four young men, you know them, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Many of you know them by their pagan names. We need to know them by their Jewish biblical names. And we saw that the word for youth is a Hebrew word, Yeladim, which means they were between 15 and 19 years of age. That's why we know when we come to the sixth chapter that Daniel's an elderly man. He's somewhere between 85 and 90 years old because the 70 years of deportation has almost expired. In chapter 2, we study King Nebuchadnezzar, who's in charge, and God gives him a dream. No one in the kingdom can interpret it but Daniel. Daniel is given the grace by God to to give him understanding. And it's a dream that begins with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, goes all the way through the Antichrist. We're going to learn more about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel than any other book in all of the Bible, all the way through the second coming of Messiah, through these different successive kingdoms. The first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom, and he said to him, you are the head of gold, old king. But what he didn't like was that after him, there would be other kingdoms who would conquer Babylon. So if you remember, when you came to the third chapter, instead of just being the head of gold, he construction image, that's all gold. And so that's the connection between the second and third chapters, unfortunately, often missed. So out there on the plain of Dura, 11 miles south of the city of Jerusalem, far away from any of the other gods in their temples, he erects this great statue, and he asks everyone to bow down and worship it. Of course, we don't know where Daniel is, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse, and because of that, they are thrown into the furnace of fire. But God supernaturally delivers them, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. You would think that special revelation would be enough to make him repent, but because he is so filled with pride, he doesn't. But God nonetheless loves Nebuchadnezzar. And so if you were here in the fourth chapter, we saw how God dealt with his pride and how Nebuchadnezzar was gloriously converted. And someday, if you're a Christian, you will meet King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Then last week, if you were here, we studied the fifth chapter, the fall of Babylon, Darius the Mede. He comes in and he takes over during the time of a drunken fest. Belshazzar, King Belshazzar is in control. You read nowhere that it's a drunken fest. You read nowhere that, there's, um, uh, that people are high, but we know that. You will hear preachers preach about it because of the Hebrew word that we studied last week for taste. He tasted The wine, and it was not simply a transfer of flavor. He was basically being intoxicated. He was tasting its effects. And so some of the newer translations will render it while under the influence. While under the influence, he sees his hand writing on the wall. Daniel comes in, interprets it. It's immediately fulfilled. He is overthrown. And so we read here at the end of chapter 5: that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So here in chapter 6, Darius the Mede is in power. Now, like every book we study, I want you to be able to think your way all the way through the book. I want you to be able to think, oh yeah, two parts to Daniel and think your way through every chapter. Why is that important? Not simply to make you a smarter sinner, but for us to become more like Jesus Christ. God wants to use his scripture In our life. And that's why I'm so encouraged when many of you take notes. Many of you don't. You need to. Because it's not just the preached word, it's the meditated word that's going to change you. And some of us are no different today than we were a year ago because we have a casual approach to the Word of God. So let God speak to you this morning. Write down some things, go back and reflect on them. God wants this book to become a part of your life, to change you, but also to be a tool in your hand as you disciple other people. So when you think of Ephesians, or Genesis, or Daniel, or Jeremiah, your mind doesn't go blank. You know what the book is about, and you know the broad general outline and how it unfolds. Now with that setting, For the context, there in your bulletin, there's an outline if you're new. And I want us to first consider the decree of the king. Uh, This uh, passage unfolds really under three headings, just as the events transpire, and that's why I've outlined it as such. We want to begin with the decree of the king that really falls into three parts. Here in the opening three verses, we find the promotion of the prophet. Follow along as we read the first few verses. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, that these satraps might be accountable to him, and that the king might not suffer loss. So we learn here that Darius reorganizes the kingdom into 120 satrapies. And over each satrapy, there's a satrap. The word satrap is an Aramaic word. And by the way, remember we're in the Aramaic section, and I told you why God translated this portion in Aramaic. But in both Aramaic and in the Hebrew rendering, the word satrap means someone who is over something. Uh, It referred to a leader, someone who cared for a region, so to speak. So there's 120 of them, and there are three commissioners of one of whom is Daniel. So presumably, each had 40 satrapies for which he was responsible. And this was all done. These protectors of the realm were such, notice, that the king might not suffer loss. Now he chooses Daniel, and he's about ready to promote Daniel, even over the three commissioners to make him second in command because of who he was. We're told that in verse 3. Notice. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So he's about to be made prime minister because he, he possessed an extraordinary spirit. If you know anything about the prophet Daniel, you know he was a breed apart. Ezekiel sets him apart with Noah and Job in the 14th chapter of his book. Daniel, Noah, Job, great men of God. And of course, Daniel is one of those few people in all of the Bible, along with Nehemiah, Joshua, and Joseph, of whom nothing evil is ever written. Now, we know he was a sinner. The Bible says, for there is no man who does not sin, All have sinned in another text and fall short of the glory of God. We know he was a sinner, but there's nothing recorded about this man. God distinguished him for who he was. And really, promotion in any kind of work, be it secular or Christian, if you are a believer, is done not so much on who you know, but what you are. And that's certainly true of Daniel. He had an extraordinary spirit. What gave him an extraordinary spirit? God's Spirit at work in his life. Now remember, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Promise, under the Old Testament, the word testament and covenant mean the same, God had a temple for his people. But under the New Covenant, under the New Deal, under the New Testament, God has a people who are his temple. Paul said, we are the temple of God. Under the Old Covenant, there were just select people who had a special relationship with God's Spirit. That's why um, just men like David and even Saul, David was fearful when the Spirit of God departed from Saul. He didn't come and live in them permanently. That is a new covenant phenomena where the Spirit of God at the moment of faith comes to live in you. You're sealed with Him for the day of redemption. He is God's mark, God's guarantee, God's down payment that what He began, He will indeed finish. That's why it could be said of John, there was never a man born of a woman greater than John, but the person who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because every new covenant believer has a uniquely different relationship than all the old covenant saints because of the blood of Christ. In New Testament terminology, we would say he was filled with the Spirit. He had an extraordinary spirit. And the words that are translated really in the Hebrew speak of a good attitude. You might say he had a good attitude because he was spirit-directed. I used to have a professor at Dallas Seminary who would always tell us, he said, listen, your attitude will affect your altitude. Your attitude will affect your altitude. And by that, he did not mean what Joe Olsteen and others who talk about you know a positive mental attitude, he wasn't talking about that at all. And there are Christians, unfortunately, who have a bad attitude, and they really limit their effectiveness for God. But what we are speaking about is someone who's dependent upon the Spirit, who relies upon the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life, and a person whose mind is continually being renewed by the Word of God. Someone who has a biblical mental attitude, and you're only filled to the degree by which you Allow God to renew your mind and you depend upon him to carry that out. Now remember, Daniel's an old man. He's between 85 and 90 based on the chronology of the book. And he lives at a time in biblical history when ages were comparable to today. Moses will write in Psalm 90, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. Now he's an old man, but he's still being greatly used of God. Wouldn't you like to be an old man and greatly used of God? I don't want to be a crusty, old, bitter person. I don't want to get bitter. I want to get better. And you can be. Now, what made this man so different? Well, in the opening chapter, we saw, one, he had the physical energy and the spiritual uh, determination to live for God physically and spiritually, and the two are connected all the way through Scripture, Daniel had distinguished himself. Remember, he refused to eat the pagan food that the king offered. And he refused the king's drink. Why? Because it was strong drink and forbidden by Holy Scripture. And so he had distinguished himself by the things he did and the way he thought. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, Some of us can walk with God, but we can compromise ourselves physically, and so that when we come to the end of life, we don't have the physical capability in which to serve the living God. Now, sometimes, understand, it's not always by choice. The Apostle Paul in his 50s was given a thorn in the flesh. He had some kind of physical ailment, we don't know specifically what it was. If I were a betting man, I would probably say his eyes, but whatever it was, he had a physical ailment that in some ways allowed him as a constant reminder to depend upon God and to walk humbly before his God. Sometimes people have physical impairments because God wants to demonstrate through their life that circumstance is not the source of joy, but the living God is. Sometimes there's sickness that comes just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, some sickness comes as a result of our sin because of discipline. And he said, for this reason, some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you sleep. God takes us to the woodshed, sometimes physically, so that we can get our life right spiritually. But then I think there are so many Christians in our day who in their 60s and 70s and 80s lacked the physical stamina to serve God because of the way they lived in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Look, I want to take care of myself now if I can, so that if the Lord tarries and He allows me to reach the age of an old man, you say you're already an old man, I want to be an old, old man, all right? Uh, I, I want to be able to be used by Him. I want to have the physical stamina to carry out the will of God in my life. Now, unfortunately, there is a lot of Christians, especially in America, who come to the end of life and they're wasting their lives. Why? Because they're listening more to what the society says and what current Christian America says than what the Word of God says. I meet some older Christians today who are more concerned about their retirement account and their golf game than they are investing in the kingdom of God. Now look, you may come to the point in your life where you quote-unquote retire. But as believers, you know we never retire from life. We are to serve the living God right to the end. And God has no reason to sustain some of us. Because we're just wasting our lives. Look, God wants you to make an impact right to the very end. And, and I know we've had a lot of older adults in the last five years who've come to Christ. God brought them from other parts of the United States because they were coming from a section where the gospel was not preached. And He brought them to this little town and they found the living God. And I meet some of them and they say, Pastor, I want God to use me and I love that. I love that spirit. You know, you meet some of these crusty old Christians and they don't want to do anything and they're going to have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. But we are to have an impact on the generation in which we live. We're not to say, well, look, I've I've served my time and now I can do what I want. No, 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 no. God calls you to impact the next generation. But you won't be able to impact the next generation in your 60s, 70s, and 80s If in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, you're not living for God, he didn't just wake up one day as an old man and and be used mightily of God. He was being used mightily of God as an old man because he was walking with God as a teenager. God calls the older men in the church to influence the younger men in Titus 2. He calls the older women in the church to impact the younger woman. One woman said to me, would you give me a younger woman? I said, no, I won't. Go find one. Get involved in the church and find one. Some of you were here at the Wednesday night service. And you heard some of the prayer requests that came that this past week dealt with a lot of young families. And listen, if we're in tune, some of us, I know some of you can't come on Wednesday night, and I respect that but some of us could be here when we pray corporately and you would start getting in touch with the next generation. This is a healthy church because it's cross-generational. We have young people, old people, we have a mix of the whole community, black, white, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, German. It's a mix of the whole community, educated, uneducated, And if you get involved and get to know people, you can begin to have an impact in their lives. I think of some of the people that God used, even as an old age. Now, I don't know where Michelangelo was spiritually. I fear he was a pervert. But nonetheless, they said he did his greatest work at the age of 89. Thomas Edison. Was still inventing at the age of 90. J.C. Penney, who is a committed born again Christian who gave 90% of his income to the work of Jesus Christ, was still in business at the age of 95. Ronald Reagan, also a born again uh, president, he was president at the age of 77. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher at the age of 88 was still preaching four sermons a day. Billy Graham recently squeaked out his latest book at the age of 96. Two of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and Dr. John Walford, both taught right up to the ends of their lives, 99 and 92 years of age respectfully. So here's Daniel in his late 80s. Remember, when you get old, you get old one day at a time, and you will never be at the age of 85, which you are not at 25. You say, well, I've blown most of my life. Well, today can be the first day of the rest of your life. Start living for Him. Go forward. Now, with that organizational setting given, beyond Daniel's success and prosperity, Uh, in his promotion, that made him the object of jealousy, which brings us to the persecution by the princes. The persecution by the princes. Look now, if you will, at verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. You talk about integrity of life. They put this man under the microscope and they can't find anything wrong. He becomes the object of an official investigation. They sought to find something wrong in him, but they could find nothing wrong with him. And as you read through it, these private investigators find at least four truths concerning the man's life. First, they look at his professional life. And we read in regards to that, number one, they could find no ground of accusation. And number two, no evidence of corruption. Here's a man in a position of leadership. There's these other commissioners, 120 satraps and some other nobles, and they can't find any corruption in him. He's got a clean record.
1: To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN7, Daniel in the Lion's Den. Don't forget you can listen to Dr. Brogy's weekly call-in question program, The Bible Line, Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern. Just visit the Search the Scriptures website, searchthescriptures.org. And feel free to email a question or call Pastor Brogy directly using the toll-free number listed on the website, searchthescriptures.org. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at Daniel and the Lion's Den and Search the Scriptures.